You're listening to Echo Zoe Radio, episode 37 for May 2011, with guest Phil Johnson on the topic of the Reformation doctrine of sola fide. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio. I'm your host, Andy Olson, proprietor of EchoZoe.com. Thanks for listening. This is episode 37 for May 2011 and kicks off the fourth year of Echo Zoe Radio. My guest this month is Phil Johnson. Phil is the executive director of Grace to You, a tape written radio ministry that features the teachings of John MacArthur. He's a member of the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals, also known as FIRE, founder of the Pyromaniac blog at teampyro.blogspot.com and curator of the Spurgeon Archive at spurgeon.org. This is my second episode with Phil, the first being episode number 22 for February 2010, when we discussed the doctrines of grace. This time we had a very enjoyable discussion about the Reformation doctrine of sola fide, or justification by faith alone. It's the second in a non-contiguous series that I'm doing on the five solas of the Reformation. Please forgive the audio quality of this episode. You may hear some occasional pops and clicks. Uh, That's the result of a less than perfect connection via Skype. In the end, however, I thought it still sounded better than it would have via phone. So welcome, Phil. Uh, Thanks so much for giving me some of your time and uh, coming on to talk about the subject of Reformation Doctrine of Sola Fide. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my favorite subject. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, You were just in town a few weeks ago for the uh, Psalm 119 conference was put on by wretched radio yeah that's right that was fun oh that was a blast I, I i go to several conferences a year and that was so far in my in my christian walk that was my favorite conference it was yeah very was, well put together that was my second uh, psalm 119 conference i did one in fort worth last year but i the morning i was supposed to speak i woke up uh with such severe back pain i could hardly stand so oh. i had to actually go to the hospital they pumped me up with pain medicine and I went to the conference and did my message, and I actually had two messages, and, and that, that's really all of that conference I got to participate in. So oh, no. this was the first Psalm 119 conference that I got to sit through all the messages and listen, and I was really surprised. It was uh, 10 messages in two days, no music groups, no singing. It was just 10 hours of preaching, and it was good. Yeah, it was wonderful. And uh, I think everybody was pleasantly surprised by Milton Vincent. Yeah. Now, Milton, uh, it's the first time I'd met him, actually. He's a graduate of the Master Seminary, so I ought to know him, and I've heard his <laughs> name for years. But it was a joy to get to meet him, and uh, and his messages were powerful. He was he was wonderful, a great, un, a, kind of an unknown for everybody, and I think everybody just kind of knocked it out of the park. Yeah. So today we're talking about, the, as I mentioned, the Reformation doctrine of sola fide. So I want to jump in and just ask right after the about the, the simple question, what is the doctrine of sola fide, and, and what was this doctrine a response to? Yeah, good question. Is sola fide is Latin for faith alone, and so it's a principle that uh, has to do with the doctrine of justification by faith, and um, it was a response to the Roman Catholic doctrine that had, had so laden uh, the doctrine of justification with, uh, with works uh, because Roman Catholicism sort of blends 
uh, justification and sanctification. And in the Roman Catholic system, you're never fully justified until you finally make it through purgatory to the other side. Uh, scripture teaches, of course, that justification is instantaneous and complete. There are lots of verses, Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1, both say, you know, that our justification is a past tense thing and something that can't be undone. And the implication of that is that uh, if justification is instantaneous, it, or rather, if justification is past tense, then it must occur instantaneously and completely. And this was what the reformers taught about justification, really what they retrieved uh, from Scripture, and, and finally made it the issue, put that issue on the table, made it as clear as possible. And it was that principle then that launched the Protestant Reformation. And what it means is we are justified through faith alone, justified because of the work of Christ, not because of our own sanctification, but God declares us righteous for the sake of Christ. Uh, he, he then makes us righteous, but the declaration of righteousness, that, that decree of justification, is not based on my righteousness, it's based on Christ's righteousness. And uh, which really captures the heart of the teaching of the Apostle Paul. It's what the book of Galatians is all about. It's the point Paul makes when he gives his own testimony in uh, Philippians 3, where he says, you know, that's his, that's his desire to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, he says, but that which is through faith. And he's speaking there about the principle of justification by faith, sola fide, by faith alone. And he's saying that faith is the the instrument that lays hold of Christ's righteousness for us. And uh, through our faith, then, we are united with Christ. And so we become participants, Scripture says, in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are united with him in such a way that his righteousness counts as our righteousness. And it's a, it's, it's a fascinating doctrine, and it's rich with implications, but it's an exact mirror of what Christ did for us in his atonement. Our sin was imputed to him. It was counted as his, and he paid the penalty of it. Now his righteousness is imputed to us. It's counted as ours, and we reap the benefit of it. And the benefit here is a full righteous standing before God, so that even though we still struggle with sin, even though we are still sinners, we're counted as righteous by God for the sake of Christ. Wonderful doctrine. It is. one, Yeah. I'm kind of, as I mentioned before we started, I, I'm, I'm, I drew up a list of questions based on an article that John MacArthur wrote about a year ago called Jesus' Perspective on Sola Fide. And in it, you, uh, he, he mentioned sacerdotalism. What is sacerdotalism and how does it relate to this doctrine of Sola Fide? Yeah, sacerdotalism is a, is a, a, a sort of a fancy name for uh, priestcraft, uh, the, the idea that there must be a human mediator, a priestly mediator between me and Christ. And uh, then sacerdotalism depends heavily on rituals and sacraments uh, in order to be the means of grace and, and the means of the instruments of justification. That's really what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that the sacraments are the instruments of justification. And that's the opposite of what sola fide teaches, which is that faith alone is the only instrument of justification. Uh, scripture teaches that we lay hold of justification by faith. The Catholic Church is teaching that, no, we lay hold of justification in a progressive way through the observance 
of the sacraments. And, and that's really the heart of what sacerdotalism is. These sacraments, which are administered by a mediatorial priesthood, become the means of justification. And really, it amounts to a different gospel. It's the very kind of thing Paul wrote to refute in the book of Galatians. So it's really a doctrine that refutes not just sola fide, but in a way, all of the, the solas of the Reformation. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Uh, all the five solas of the of the Reformation have to do ultimately with, uh, or at least the heart of it is this principle of justification. And sola fide is the sort of linchpin that that holds it all together. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the five solas mean that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for the sake of Christ alone, you know, and ultimately for the glory of God alone. And the whole principle falls apart if uh, if you let go of the principle of justification by faith alone. So one of the principal texts that uh, Roman Catholics likes to use as a refu- refutation for sola fide would be James 2.17. Uh, even so, faith, if it has no works, being dead, being by itself. Right. How, how as Protestants, uh, Reformed Protestants, would we respond to that claim that, that this verse refutes sola fide? Yeah, you have to take into, into account what James is talking about there, and in the context, he's talking about how our faith is demonstrated, how it's displayed. And he says, you show me your faith uh, you know, without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And his point is that there's no way to demonstrate faith to other people other than through the fruit of faith, and that is good works. Mm-hmm. And no one would deny that the, the expected and, and inevitable fruit of genuine faith is good works. And that's what James is saying when he says faith without works is dead. He's saying if your faith never produces any kind of good works, if, if there's never any change in your life as a result of your justification— then you have grounds to re-examine yourself and ask the question of whether your faith is genuine, because faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's saying that not that it, w- it once was alive and now it's dead. He's saying it's stillborn faith. It's useless faith. It's a faith that doesn't save if, if it's utterly devoid of works or if it never produces the fruit of good works. But what he is not saying is that faith is a prerequisite to justification before God. Remember, he's talking about how we demonstrate our faith to one another. You show me your faith, he says, without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not talking about how we demonstrate our faith to God, because God knows our hearts. And the the whole idea of justification by faith is that uh, uh, we we are saved, we are justified the instant we believe. And there are many texts in Scripture that, that show that some of my favorites are the thief on the cross. Yeah. yeah. You know, who was instantly justified when he turned to Christ and believed. And uh, of course there's the, uh, the story of the, the Pharisee, the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the publican and the publican was instantly justified. Jesus said he went down to his house justified. So uh, scripture expressly teaches that works are not a prerequisite for justification, but they are the fruit of faith. And so that's the proper order, that works come after faith. They they are an expression and a demonstration that faith is genuine. They are not a prerequisite for justification. They're the fruit of justification, not the means of justification. And that's where the sure. Roman Catholic Church turns it on its head. They 
they want to make good works into the the instruments and the means of justification when in fact it's the fruit of our justification so then it'd be fair to say that that the works really are for the benefit of our fellow believers not necessarily as a demonstration or a proof to god that we have saving faith well i mean that's part of it works are, are, are serve a greater purpose than that but but in the context when he when he talks about justification uh, you, that we're, he says, this is how then we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, James is saying, uh, if you take the context, he's saying, this is how we justify ourselves in the eyes of one another. This is how we demonstrate sure. that our faith is genuine. This is how we show our righteousness to uh, other people. He's not talking about justification before God. And that's, I think, where people get confused. It's possible to juxtapose James against Paul so that they sound almost as if they're contradicting one another, because uh, Paul says in Romans 4, you know, that we're saved by, uh, we're justified through faith alone, Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, where he says, you know, to him who, who does not work but believes, his faith is counted for righteousness. So he's clearly teaching there that, that faith alone is the instrument by which we lay hold of that righteousness that counts before God. Then James comes along and says, well, you see, then there's a sense in which we can be, we're justified not by faith alone, but, you know, through our works. And he's talking about something totally different there. He's talking about how we demonstrate the righteousness of Christ for the benefit of one another. Uh, I, I like I can't remember which commentator it was, but the best description of the, the supposed tension between James and Paul, I read a commentator who said they're not two swordsmen standing uh, opposed to one another, crossing swords and arguing over justification, but they are, they are uh, on the same team, standing back to back, defending the gospel against two different enemies. Paul was defending the gospel against legalism, the legalism mm -hmm. specifically of the Judaizers who wanted to make rituals and works and specifically uh, the ceremonial uh, ordinances of the Old Testament law, the Judaizers wanted to make those prerequisites of justification. That's legalism, and Paul opposed it. James was opposing a kind of antinomianism, the sort that says, well, if I'm justified by faith alone, apart from works, then works are utterly irrelevant to the Christian life, and I don't need to produce any. And, and James says, that's not even genuine faith, that's antinomianism. Mm-hmm. That was one thing I got out of your um, one of your um, sermons at Psalm 119, this uh, idea of putting legalism and antinomianism and uh, comparing the two. And you made the comment that antinomianism denies Christ as Lord, whereas uh, legalism denies Christ as Savior. Yeah, that's exactly right. You, you can put uh, legalism and antinomianism uh, side by side, and they look like absolute antithetical principles, and, and there's a sense in which they are. They are mm -hmm. the opposite errors. They are the opposite opposites in the sense that they both attack justification by faith, and yet they, they sort of point different directions. The legalist is, is saying, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do, you know, it's, a, it's legal. That's why we call it legalism. Mm -hmm. Antinomianism is saying, basically, you don't have to do anything. You know, works are utterly irrelevant, and uh, they don't mean a thing. And yet, while it sounds like those two things are opposite and incompatible principles, you often find them side by side. Mm -hmm. Some some of the worst legalists in the world are antinomians, 
and vice versa. And uh, so uh, what they both have in common is they reject the principle of sola fide as it's taught in scripture. And wherever you find a legalist or wherever you find an antinomian, you'll find someone who is unsound on the doctrine of justification. That seems to be where today that we are really uh, kind of in the most trouble in, the, in, re, in regard to the doctrine of sola fide. Then. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, practically every serious uh, theological error that, that I'm concerned about today, and there are many of them, all, all of them, or virtually all of them, at one, in one way or another, uh, reduce down to a, a direct attack on the principle of sola fide, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got the no lordship theology uh, that's sort of that re- really actually dominated the evangelical movement for 30 or 40 years. And uh, you've got uh, the new perspective on Paul, which is a, a direct attack on the reformers view of uh, justification. And it's an attempt to, to devise a whole new understanding of justification that even really takes it out of the realm of soteriology, puts it in the realm of ecclesiology, and uh, it, it, it... What is this uh, new perspective on Paul? Yeah, the new perspective on Paul is a, it's a sort of radical reinterpretation of the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me like what really underlies and motivates it is an attempt to make Paul, Paul's theology more politically correct, at least okay. in, its, in its more recent... Uh, the manifestations. The new perspective on Paul goes back to really the the early part of the 20th century. It began to develop, and you had men like Albert Schweitzer and and some other German theologians and so on who who were uh, taking a fresh look at the New Testament and saying maybe we've misunderstood Paul. Maybe we don't really even understand correctly what he means by the term justification. What if rather than being concerned with my standing before God? Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of justification, is talking about, you know, who's in the covenant community. And over the years, that sort of morphed into a politically correct view of, uh, of you know, the covenant community, uh, so that uh, by, by the most popular versions of the new perspective on Paul, and there, there are many more than one, uh, in fact, the whole perspective started— uh, uh, with liberals and neo-orthodox, and it's more or less sort of found its way into more evangelical thought in the past 20 years or so. Uh, and what it always boils down to is a redefinition of justification, where the idea is that justification isn't about my personal standing before God or any individual's standing before God or personal righteousness or any of that. It's all about who's in the covenant community and and uh the principle of justification that Paul was concerned about was that nobody should be excluded. So Paul was a, the great inclusivist. He was the first great, you know, postmodern inclusivist. If you listen to the uh, the new perspective on Paul, and mm-hmm. um, you know, there there are probably as many different versions of the new perspective on Paul as there are people who like it. But the one thing they all seem to have in common is that they don't like the reformed view of justification by faith. They don't like terms like imputation, even though that's a biblical term. Sure. They don't like to speak of the righteousness of God as if it had to do with, uh, you know, what, what we conventionally would think about as righteousness. Mm-hmm. It's it's just about God's covenant faithfulness, you know, or it, it can be redefined in 
other ways. But it's always seems to me defined in a way that narrows the concept of righteousness and alters the concept of righteousness so that righteousness isn't something that that can be even that even could be imputed from me to Christ. It's not the antithesis of guilt, which is, as I understand it, really how Scripture portrays righteousness. It's the antithesis of guilt. Mm-hmm. My guilt can be transferred to Christ so that he can be so that he can pay the penalty of it. Then his righteousness needs to be transferred to me so that I can be justified. And and once you do away with the principle of imputation, once you do away with with the idea that righteousness is something that can be imputed, then you destroy the gospel, frankly. Sure. And and so all of these various attacks on sola fide ultimately boil down to attacks, whether deliberate or not, they, they, they ultimately become attacks on the gospel itself. I think, yep. you know, if you wanted to identify the very heart of the gospel, that's it, the principle of sola fide, the, the good news, the gospel, at the heart of the message is the news that we are saved because of what Christ has done for us, not because of what we do for him. Mm-hmm. And that's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Any religion man can devise, any false religion you've ever thought of, ultimately all of them are all about telling you how you can do something to gain a right standing with God. Christianity alone has the message that God has done on our behalf everything we need to do to have a right standing with him. He's done it for us. And so our justification is by faith alone. All we have to do is lay hold of it by faith. And um, uh, once you begin to attack the principle of sola fide, you eat away at the foundation of the gospel itself. Mm -hmm. I didn't have this on my list of questions, but I I really want to ask about the relationship between the doctrine of election and the doctrine of sola fide? Well, obviously there is a close relationship. It's not, it's not so close that uh, if you're squishy on election, you know, you're not going to be right on justification by faith. But I do think that they're, they're linked so closely that if you're squishy on election, if you're uncomfortable with the doctrine of election, uh, you're going to undermine your ability to understand clearly the doctrine of justification by faith. In fact, uh, as, I, as I read church history, it seems to me that there were no Arminians who were really sound on justification by faith until about the time of Wesley. That was sort of the, the innovation of Wesleyan uh, Arminianism. Wesley, of course, didn't like the doctrine of, uh, of election. He, he, he ardently opposed uh, any hint of Calvinism. And yet Wesley himself was converted uh, by listening to a reading of, of, of the uh, introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans, which is all about election and the sovereignty of God mm-hmm. and, and, and the principle of justification by faith. And the principle of justification was so firmly fixed in Wesley's mind that even though there were aspects of his theology that seemed to to be at war against a sound understanding of justification. If you, if you read his sermons on justification, they're sound enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he could be sounder if he really understood and affirmed the sovereignty of God. But, uh, but I, I think his, you know, he didn't deny sola fide. He didn't deny the imputation of Christ's righteousness. 
And uh, he didn't deny the sufficiency, the absolute sufficiency of Christ's atoning work to, to do everything for us that needs to be done for our salvation. And I, I think, you know, Wesley was the first, certainly the first uh, prominent Arminian who really was able to maintain his Arminianism and be sound on the doctrine of justification by faith. So, yeah, I think there's a principle uh, that, that ties uh, justification together with the doctrine of election in such a way that, you know, if, if you're not sound on, on the sovereignty of God and the principle of election, it's going to, it's going to undermine your ability to really understand and affirm justification by faith very well. But there are those who've managed to do it. Yeah, and it bears, uh, it probably would be important to maybe talk just briefly about the nature of, of the faith itself and the source of that faith. And that yeah, good. Arminians, good. You, you talk about the Arminians, and, and an Arminian would give the believer some credit for faith. Whereas well, and that's exactly right. That's that you put your finger on the reason why Arminianism uh, sort of chips away at the foundation of justification by faith, because an Arminian sort of refuses to see, and this is not universally true of all Arminians, but uh, Arminians tend to have a problem with the idea that faith itself is a gift of God. Mm -hmm. They they want to portray faith as the as a completely human response, the the working of of free will, you know. And when you do that, what you do is turn faith into it. Faith itself becomes a human work. And if faith is a work, then the, the, the very principle at the heart of sola fide is undermined because, uh, you know, what, what you come up with is, okay, maybe we're not saved by works, plural, but there is this one work we have to do, and it's faith. Sure. Faith is not a work properly understood. Faith itself is a gift of God. Faith is is uh, uh, a sovereign work of God in the heart of someone who is otherwise spiritually dead or formerly spiritually mm. dead. And faith is the result of God's work in that heart to awaken the heart, uh, to regenerate that dead soul unto faith. And um, uh, that's how Calvinists universally see it. Of course, Arminians typically struggle with that. And in so doing, what they do is turn faith into a human work and uh, you can see immediately why that sort of opposes the whole principle of sola fide, because sola fide uh, teaches what it teaches in order to make it very clear that salvation is all of God. It's God's work for me. It's not something I do for him. But the minute you make faith a work, you make faith, which is the instrument of justification, something I've done for God rather than something he's done for me. And that's a serious theological problem, and it has ramifications the ripples of that error go through all of your theology. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so I would say that Wesley and Arminians have always had a kind of uncomfortable relationship with the doctrine of justification by faith and the principle of sola fide, but in a formal sense, they affirm it. Sure. Well, I hate to go down what could potentially be a rabbit trail, but we, we're talking about Calvinism, Arminianism, and... Uh, one thing you haven't brought up is Pelagianism. And every time I talk about Arminianism, I'd like to kind of, especially with, with you uh, and your understanding, kind of uh, describe the distinction between Pelagianism versus Arminianism. Because I think a lot of times, at least today, when we hear Arminianism, today's Arminians almost appear more Pelagian in some respects. 
Yeah, that's true. In fact, uh, it's funny. People who deny that they are uh, Calvinists or Arminians usually are Arminians. People who self-profess as Arminians often, when you when you press them, you find out. In fact, they're full full bore Pelagians. Mm-hmm. Pelagianism refers to an era that that sort of cropped up around in the early church around the fourth century or thereabouts, mm-hmm. uh, and it was it was an attack on the idea of the sovereignty of God because. Pelagius, who was a monk, uh, who encountered uh, some of the writings of Augustine, and, and specifically in Augustine's writings, he, he discovered a prayer that uh, Augustine prayed, uh, saying, Lord, you know, command me to do whatever you wish, and give me the ability to do it. And Pelagius said, that that can't be right, because then if you don't do what God has commanded, you, you blame him and his sovereignty for your own failure. If if we're responsible for our failures, then we must be. We must also have the ability for success. And so, from that, he developed a whole theology of free will, mm-hmm. and what Pelagianism is. And the reason it's it's often connected with uh, Arminianism, and in fact, the reason sometimes Arminians drift into Pelagianism is because they both have at their at their root uh, an overconcern on the whole idea of free will. The Pelagian says you're born with free will. The Pelagian says you 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 didn't inherit anything from Adam other than a bad example. But you're born like Adam was with the ability to choose good or evil and you can make that choice. Uh Charles Finney was a a classic Pelagian mm-hmm. and he even said he even said look af- even after you've sinned, even after you've fallen, you have within your power the ability to choose to change your own heart. And, and he had, uh, you know, a sermon that had a title, something like, you know, sinners are under the responsibility or are under the duty to change their own hearts. And um, so that was his notion that, you know, and, and in fact, that's the, at the heart of classic Pelagianism. The idea is that your choice to do good and, and evil is purely a free will choice there's nothing in you that inclines you one way or the other, and you have absolute freedom if you so choose to do good. And so in the Pelagian system, conversion simply becomes uh, a decision whereby you change your mind and you, you start doing what you formerly did not do because of your sin. You just stop sinning. In fact, there's a website that's classic Pelagianism. At least it used to be on the web. It may still be there. Uh, and the the website the uh, domain name was stopsinning.com. <laughs> Funny. The whole idea of this guy was, look, Scripture commands us to be holy, and it's very simple to do that. All you have to do is stop sinning. And, uh, of course, that ignores the fact that Scripture teaches we're slaves to sin. We mm-hmm. can't do what we wish we could do. Even the Apostle Paul, in his mature years, wrote Romans 7 to say that very thing. And he, and he mm-hmm. also said it to the Galatians in Galatians 5. You know, you, you're, the spirit lusts against the flesh so that you cannot do the things you wish you could. We can't. We're in bondage to sin. And uh, until we're glorified, we're never going to be completely free from the presence of sin. Although we're liberated from its, from its absolute bondage now, if those who are believers, we are still uh, incapable by any kind of free will choice of making ourselves perfect. Mm-hmm. And, one day God will make us perfect in glorification, but he hasn't done that yet. That's Pelagianism, the idea that, you know, you there's nothing wrong with you other than bad choices you make. Just make good choices and you'll be fine. Pelagianism. 
Then uh, that was declared heresy within, you know, a few decades, really. The church denounced it and said, this is contrary to everything we've ever taught about the necessity of the grace of God. In fact, that was Augustine's answer to the early Pelagians. He said, look, if their system was right, we don't have any need for God's grace. We don't need God's help in anything. We just need to straighten up and fly right. But Scripture talks so much about grace because grace is at the heart of the gospel, and that fact alone proves that we need grace. There's something wrong with us that we cannot fix. And, of course, the church saw that immediately. Anybody who's honest with himself would see that immediately. But within another hundred years or so, another error cropped up called semi-Pelagianism. A lot of Arminians are simply semi-Pelagians. The idea of the semi-Pelagian view was that, uh, yes, we're all born fallen. We inherit a fallen nature from Adam, but but there is a thing called prevenient grace, where God gives in, in equal measure just enough grace to everyone to give them enough free will to choose either for or against Christ. And so the choice is still up to you, and uh, you don't need God's assistance any more than we are all already have. And everybody gets equal amounts of this prevenient grace. And so the difference between the saved and the unsaved is simply that the saved people made a better choice. That is, in fact, what a lot of contemporary... Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds very familiar. Yeah, it's very much like Arminianism. And in fact, if you read some of the early writings between Augustine and, Pel- and the Pelagians, between the... the um, you know, the the mainstream Catholics and uh, the semi-Pelagians, what you'll discover is a debate that is hardly different at all from the classic debates between Calvinists and Arminians. They're arguing over the very same things. So this is not a debate that came up in in the Reformation for the first time after Calvin wrote his Institutes of, of, uh, you know, the Christian religion. He, this is not, it's not a, the debate between Arminians and Calvinism is not a uh, fruit of Calvin's influence. It's a debate that was going on in the church really from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So Charles Finney is kind of seen as the father of modern day decision evangelism. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and the ironic thing is what he really represents is a full-fledged uh, revival of this long-discredited heresy, Pelagianism. I was just going to ask that. Where would you put him on the spectrum between Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Arminianism? Then of oh, course- he, was, he was a full-on Pelagian, no question about it. In fact, I have an article that I wrote on the web uh, where I, I quote the, the salient parts of uh, Finney's systematic theology where he pretty much denies – oh, he denies everything. I mean he denies uh, that uh, anyone is born with a fallen, sinful nature. He caricatures the – classic Protestant view by trying to make it sound as if what we believe is that there's some sort of physical uh, depravity or material depravity or whatever. But he, uh, he, he actually denies the, that people are born fallen, that they have sure. a, a natural inclination to sin. He denies that. Uh, he denies the principle of imputation, and so he doesn't believe in justification by faith. There's really not much gospel truth uh, that Finney would have even given lip service to. It's amazing, frankly, that he is held up as an icon of evangelical you know, thinking, mm-hmm. or that he's influenced evangelicals, because he was not evangelical himself. He preached something other than the gospel, and when 
ultimately, even during his lifetime, he saw that that message didn't really work, that people who seemed to be temporarily converted never went forward with Christ. His converts, uh, to almost to a man, all fell away. And when he saw that, he, he left evangelism and began to devise a, a perfectionist theology that really pushed him about as far in the direction of any cult as you could possibly get. Uh, you know, he he should be considered a cultist rather than an evangelical. Sure. Well, kind of heading back in the direction that I was originally going, the, my next question I developed was, how does the misunderstanding of the distinction between justification and sanctification lead to a misunderstanding of justification by faith alone? And if we're justified by faith alone, are we also sanctified by faith alone? Yeah, those are good questions. And two different questions, really. The, the the first one has to do with, uh, you know, what, what does it do to your theology if you confuse or blend justification and sanctification? The answer to that is pretty simple. Just look at the Roman Catholic Church, and the result is what you see. Mm-hmm. Back to something I said in the very beginning. Scripture portrays justification by faith as a finished, past tense reality. Having been justified by faith... Uh, you know, we have peace with God, Romans 5.1, and Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and consistently, Scripture treats justification as an instantaneous declaration of righteousness. It's not where God makes us righteous, that's sanctification. It's where God declares us righteous and gives us a righteous standing, even though we're not yet fully righteous. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Lutherans have a Latin phrase for, for everything, and they have one for this. It's uh, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously, <laughs> simultaneously justified and sinful. Okay. And uh, that that uh, that almost sounds... I'm going to have to uh, Google that one. Yeah, it's, it's Latin, simul justus et peccator. Uh, it, it, it sounds almost irreverent to say that someone is at the same time justified and yet still sinful. But that is exactly what Scripture says, that God justifies the ungodly, mm-hmm. Romans 5. And that's the principle there, that God justifies us while we are still ungodly. He gives us a righteous standing, not because of our own righteousness. He's not saying that we have attained righteousness. He's declaring us righteous for the sake of Christ, because of our union with Christ, because of what Christ did for us, because our sins are paid for. And so that's not an issue in the, in the, you know, cosmic courtroom. I can't be condemned. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation because Christ took my condemnation. And so in exchange, I get credit for his righteousness. In effect, I, I, I am declared righteous because of what he's done, just as he was treated as sinful because of what I've done. And so it's, a, it's a, an exchange from which I am the complete beneficiary and that's why the gospel is such good news. But it's important to hold on to the idea that justification, it's not a process. It's not something God does in us. It's something he does in, in the cosmic courtroom. You know, mm-hmm. the, the parallel I like to use is, is it's very much like the uh, pronouncement a pastor makes at a wedding. I now pronounce you man and wife. It doesn't change anything in the body or mind or heart of the individuals who are being married, what it changes is their legal status. But that declaration 
has far-reaching ramifications, and it instantly changes their legal status. Now this couple who were to become one, and that's exactly how justification works. We're united with Christ. We become one with him, and God declares us righteous. And because of that, because of that declaration, we have a standing with him that is as perfect as if we had lived Christ's perfect life. I really like that analogy. Yeah. Not only because it does, it illustrates it really well, but marriage itself is an, is a demonstration of our relationship between the, yeah, the pre- church and Christ. Precisely. That, that it's, it's, it's not that, uh, it's not that justification sort of echoes what marriage is like, but that God designed marriage to be a picture mm-hmm. of the union of Christ and his church. So that's what marriage is designed to illustrate. And, and once you, if you lose sight of the fact that justification is that sort of that declaration that gives us a different standing instantaneously, it's a finished work. Uh, if you lose sight of that, then you you really lose sight of the heart of the gospel. Once you start to try to blend justification and sanctification together, you turn justification into a process. And if it's a process, you have to ask, well, when will the process be finished? And the Catholics say, at the end of purgatory, basically. And that's why they have to have purgatory, even though there's no hint of any kind of purgatory in Scripture. The Catholic Church had to invent it because with their doctrine of justification— you, you, Christ said you have to be as perfect as God is perfect. And if, if my perfection, my righteousness depends on what I do, I know I'm not perfect. And the Catholics know nobody who, nobody's really perfect, even at the point when they die. Nobody's perfected in this life. So they have to have purgatory to explain how someone who dies imperfect can become perfect enough to enter into heaven. And that's the whole point of purgatory. It's not a hint of it in Scripture, because it's contrary to the doctrine of justification by faith. But um, you, you see why the Catholic Church has to invent it. Mm-hmm. So then back to the other question, um, if we're justified by faith alone, are we also then sanctified by faith alone? Not in the same sense. I would say we're sanctified by faith, but not by faith alone. Uh, in the same, at least not in the same sense that we are justified by faith alone. And the difference being this, sanctification is not an instantaneous thing. It's a, it is a process. It's a lifelong process. And in fact, it's a process that won't be completed in this life. And the answer to it is not purgatory, but glorification. So that what scripture teaches is that when we see Christ, we are instantly glorified. When you die or if Christ returns, when we see him, Scripture says, we'll be like him. We'll be instantly glorified. But in the meantime, that, that process of conforming us to the image of Christ is a process. It's not an instantaneous thing. And, and this is the ironic thing about uh, Arminians and Pelagians and, and all. Think of it, both Wesley and Finney developed uh, perfectionist theologies. They both desperately wanted some kind of doctrine that would say, you can instantly reach perfect sanctification. You know, perfectionism is the, is the natural result of that theology, and yet it's, it's as wrong as, you know, the Pelagians' view of justification is wrong. They turn justification into a process, but they want sanctification to occur instantaneously, and it doesn't. And there is no promise of instant perfection anywhere in Scripture. There's no way you can reach a plane or a plateau in this life where you no longer struggle with sin. But Scripture teaches that the warfare with sin that we wage is a lifelong battle. And we grow, and we, we make progress, but it's slow, 
and grueling and frustrating, and even the Apostle Paul was frustrated by it, and that is the normal Christian life. Uh, and in fact, you know, it was, um, oh, what's his name? Witness, no, Watchman Nee, who wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life, in which he was arguing that the normal Christian life is life lived on a plateau where, you know, we live above sin. That's not what Scripture portrays as the normal Christian life. What Scripture portrays as the normal Christian life is expressed very well by Paul in Romans 7. And like the rest of creation, we groan under the weight of our fallenness, and we will continue to groan until our bodies are redeemed, until we're fully glorified. And the the nature of that groan is what constitutes the second half of Romans 7. If you want to see what that groan is life, like and be, be uh, comforted and encouraged in the midst of your own struggle with sin, just read what Paul said about his struggle with sin in Romans 7. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the more subtle heresies that arise out of a denial of sola fide that we may not have discussed already? Um, well, any kind of works religion. Actually, the, you, could almost, you could almost turn your question around and say, uh, w- what do all false religions have in common? And the answer is they all ultimately uh, deny or, or overthrow the principle of sola fide, the doctrine of justification by faith. Mm-hmm. Every false religion that's ever been invented, every cult, Every, every man-made religion, all of them ultimately, as I said, I think a little bit earlier, uh, they, all of them ultimately are telling you what you need to do in order to have a right standing with God. That's what, that's what religion boils down to. And what sets Christianity apart, what makes authentic biblical Christianity different from all other religions is the principle of sola fide, that that uh, everything you need for a right standing with God, God has already done on your behalf, and all you have to do is claim it by faith. And um, so really every single error I can think of, every major heresy you could ever name, all of them ultimately involve at least a uh, denial of sola fide. So I like, to talk, I like to talk often about how we can't possibly know every false teaching, every uh, heresy, every false religion you can't you can't know every one of them thoroughly so the best way to spot them is to know the truth yeah that's right and starting with the doctrine of justification by faith i've often said this is the this is the the central doctrine that you need to anchor yourself with and stay sound on there are other vitally important doctrines that, like the deity of christ for example or or uh, the doctrine of the trinity a, a correct understanding of the godhead mm-hmm. Um, those are also vitally important, and you'll find most cults, you know, deny one or more of those principles as well. But uh, it, I've never encountered any, but there may be some, but I've never actually encountered any false teaching that uh, is sound on sola fide and justification by faith, but unsound on, say, the deity of Christ or the mm-hmm. Doctrine of the Trinity. Here's why I think about it. The, the principle of sola fide, the doctrine of justification, depends on um, uh, a righteousness that is as perfect as the righteousness of God. Jesus said you have to be as, as perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, he's the only one who ever was, and the reason for that is his deity. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to see that the righteousness that is imputed to a believer is the righteousness of God, and it's Christ who, who makes that possible. It's our union with Christ that accomplishes that. Then you have to affirm 
in practical terms, you have to affirm the deity of Christ, because otherwise, if the only righteousness I have comes from Christ and he's less than God, then his righteousness is less than the righteousness I need. Mm. And so if you're sound enough on justification by faith, you're going to be sound on the deity of Christ and ultimately the doctrine of the Trinity, the same thing. So you, you could be sound on the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, Roman Catholics are, and yet uh, mess up the doctrine of justification badly enough that what you're teaching ultimately amounts to a completely different gospel. That was the problem with the Judaizers Paul wrote to refute in Galatians, and he treated them as unbelievers. In fact, he, he called them accursed. In Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, he used some of the strongest language Paul ever used against any other religion. And yet, think about it, these guys undoubtedly affirmed the deity of Christ, they, uh, they, I don't think they would have denied any of the words of Christ or the teachings of Christ, but they were unsound on sola fide. And Paul said that ultimately results in a totally different gospel. And if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. Mm -hmm. So I, I think sola fide, justification by faith, is the most important of all the doctrines we hold to as Christians. And if you want to be carefully on guard against any kind of heresy, learn that one. And it sounds like a simple doctrine, but it's not. You could devote your lifetime to studying it and not plumb the depths of it. Mm -hmm. Would it be fair to say, or would you agree with me if I said that uh, true saving faith depends completely on a proper understanding of both the person and works of Jesus Christ, and where sola fide ties in is in that the, the works of Christ? Yeah, yeah, plus, if you think about it, it's the principle of sola fide, and, and the, the, the full-orb doctrine of justification by faith, along with the idea that it's Christ's righteousness imputed to me. If I, if I don't have some sense of that, and I don't say you have to be a, a doctor of theology in order to be saved, but if you don't yeah. have some understanding that it's Christ's righteousness I rely on and not my own, then I don't think what you have is saving faith yet. And so I, I think it's important to, to understand and affirm this doctrine. And if you deny it, then, you know, you're really in the same boat as the Galatian Judaizers that Paul opposed so strongly. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a different gospel. Mm -hmm. Well, I only had one other question left. Uh, you know, we okay. definitely can continue. But um, just wondering if there's anything else that we haven't discussed yet that's really important to a proper understanding of justification by faith alone. No, but something occurred to me when you asked that question about, you know, other, uh, other heresies. Are there any others that get this wrong? And my answer was, really, all of them do. The one that's most talked about, at least these past two weeks, has been Rob Bell's denial of hell. Thank you for going there, actually. Um, I just finished uh, this, this conversation we're having will be my May 2011 um, episode of the podcast. And um, I'm just about to post... Uh, the April episode that I recorded just a few days ago that was dedicated to Rob Bell. So sorry to interrupt you, but thank you for going there. No, no, that's, that's right. And it's an important issue right now. What surprises me is that so many Christians are confused by it because Bell's doctrine is so egregiously wrong. I don't see how anyone who actually believes the gospel can, can see it and affirm it. But you might ask, well, how does, how does what he's teaching intrude on the principle of sola fide? How does Rob Bell's sort of quasi-universalism, how does that threaten the doctrine of justification by faith? And the answer is, just think about it. What he's saying is, 
that uh, faith in Christ it not only is not the instrument of justification, it's not even it's not even necessary. You could die not knowing anything about Christ or having heard about Christ and rejecting him or whatever, and still after you die, according to Rob Bell, you, you might get a second chance. And in fact, he believes you will get a second chance because he thinks if God doesn't give you a second chance post-mortem, then God himself isn't lenient enough. He's not kind enough. He's not loving enough. And so uh, what what he's actually got in his head is the idea that, that somehow we deserve heaven. We deserve a chance. We deserve redemption, that redemption is not a gracious gift of God. It's something God owes us, and if he doesn't do it, then he's not good enough. And um, that involves a denial of sola fide on several levels, because at the heart of it, the assumption that you, you in and of yourself, are righteous enough to, to deserve heaven, to warrant heaven, uh, whether you believe in Christ or not. Mm-hmm. And so it's a direct attack on the on the necessity of faith in Christ, much less the instrumentality of our faith to justify us. Thank you. And I guess another question I had in mind was um, that uh, this is the second episode that I'm doing on the five solos of the Reformation. Uh, I recorded one last fall with uh, Dr. James White on Sola Gratia. But I'd like to ask you how you might just quickly, or as quickly as you can, tie Sola Fide to the other four solos. Well, the, they sort of tie together naturally, and as I said, I think earlier, they're, they all have sort of as their focus and the, the anchor that holds them together, the doctrine of justification. We are justified by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm trying to think of the fifth sola. To the glory of God alone? Yeah, but that's the, what's the? Sola Scriptura? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. I leave out sola scriptura because the 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 two most important solas really are sola fide and sola scriptura. They were known as the the formal and the and the material principles of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and scripture, the sola scriptura means scripture alone. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority. That's what that's where we learn about justification by faith. So that's how that one comes in. It's sort of the foundation, the platform for everything else. And it was so it was known as the formal principle. Then the material principle of the Reformation was the principle of sola fide, the doctrine of justification by faith. So Scripture, as the sole authority, that's sola scriptura, teaches us that we are justified by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, uh, through in Christ alone, solus Christus, uh, to the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. So there's all the solas sort of tied together. It's it's a very neat package that the reformers were arguing. And, uh, and they made this point again and again, that it's all about the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is this principle of justification by faith. Well, I, I'm a little bit torn here. Um, I'm out of questions for you. And um, I, I we heard your grandkids in the background, and I, on one hand, want to let you get to your grandkids. But on the other hand, I'm uh, so glad to have you on the line. I think it's been such a fascinating topic that uh, I'd like to keep talking, but I don't know what else to ask you. Is there anything else that you want to offer about Sola Fide? No, thanks for having me, and, and thanks for being patient while my grandchildren chimed in. This is their first interview, so, <laughs> uh, so thanks for doing that. And uh, also thanks for your patience because I was a little bit late, and I was actually a lot late. <laughs> no problem. Um, I, I'm just glad everything's okay. I was a little bit concerned that you know that uh, something – Something might happen. No, thanks for hanging around and waiting for me. It's one of those days. Actually, uh, 
I live in L.A. I live in North L.A. And L.A. is all messed up today because on the day we're recording this, uh, Obama's in town and they have half the roads closed. Oh. So you can't get from anywhere to anywhere today. And uh, so. I feel your pain. L.A. thing. Yeah, I feel your pain. I should have left for home earlier. Okay, well, um, thank you so much for giving me uh, some of your time tonight and for, for t- discussing this, this topic. It, it's a fascinating topic. I think the solos are, are, are great to talk about, and um, I, I just appreciate your time. All right, thank you. I appreciate it, too. And anytime you want to, we'll do this. All right, well, thank you. Well, that wraps up Episode 37. Thanks for listening. For show notes to today's episode, which include a thorough outline of our discussion, as well as links to additional resources on the subject, please visit echozoe.com slash 37. You'll also find links to the Facebook page, my Twitter account, and information on how to sign up for email alerts when new episodes are released. Thanks again, and Lord willing, I'll be back in June for episode 38.